All right, well, after all that, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to come and hear from your word. Lord, uh, we do trust that your word is, is not only inerrant and um, inspired, but it is also sufficient for all that we need to know. God, I pray that uh, you would open our ears, open the eyes of our hearts right now, that we might see wonderful things in your law. God, I do pray that you would even now save that one which is nearest hell. Be with us now in this hour. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for inviting me. I always um, feel privileged and uh, maybe a little concerned when people invite me <laughs> where I've never been before. I told someone the other day that I was at a pastor's uh, meeting and the first time I'd ever been there and they called on me to preach the next time and I said, okay, but <laughs> you don't know what you're getting. I, I hope that I will not let you down. Well, I was assigned the topic of culture and our children. Um, it was a little uncertain whether or not I was going to be able to be with you at all, and that's why you don't see my name there in the program. I had to back out and then come back and honor my word and, and make that trip. So I'm glad to be here. I'm glad I was able to come. As I thought about this topic of children and our culture, there's so many places that we could go, but one thing that stood out foremost in my mind was Israel there on the verge of entering the promised land, and as we see that recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Because as Israel was standing there about to go into the promised land, Moses takes this opportunity, it's really what the book of Deuteronomy is, it's several uh, messages delivered by Moses, you could almost think of it as, and he was warning them about many things, but perhaps the chief concern was that the people would not be drawn astray by the idolatry of the people in the land, and we see that they did not succeed in that, and the Lord uh, honored his word and did exactly what he said he was going to do. But for this reason, for the dangers that they were facing, we see these messages from Moses. He summons the Israelites and reviews the covenant that they had recently made with God. We see that in Deuteronomy 5, verses 1 to 2. It says that Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing, that you may learn them and observe them carefully. The Lord your God made a covenant with you at Horeb. The Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us, with all those alive here today. And we could go on, but here he is reviewing the covenant that they've made. And then the result of keeping this covenant is expressed in chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, where it says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it, so that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Also, the means by which this covenant is to be kept is expressed there in verses 4 to 9 of chapter 6. And then the consequences, the penalties for not keeping that covenant, we see again in chapter 6, verses 10 to 15. And we could go on as this theme kind of replays itself all throughout the book of Deuteronomy. But what I wanted you to see is that the children of Israel are at a cultural crossroads here as they are about to enter the promised land. They have the culture that has been established by God and given to them, by direct revelation through the Mosaic Law. And they are coming into conflict with the culture of the nations who currently live in the Promised Land. You remember, they are about to go in and dispossess these nations. They are going to drive out with the sword these people. They are going to take over their houses, 
They are going to get their vineyards. They are going to get the cisterns with water that they did not hew out. You remember those things that the Lord warns them of. And so there is going to be a conflict with the cultures surrounding them. Now under the old covenant system, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 9, especially there in verses 4 to 6, the Israelites were appointed by God to act militarily as judges upon these cultures. It says there, Do not say in your heart when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this land to possess it, for you are a stubborn people. So it's amazing. The Lord knows, and Moses knows, and he is telling the people that they have been appointed by God to act as judges, almost in very similar ways in which the Babylonians came in later to judge Israel for their wickedness. So, obviously, we can see there are some distinct differences between the situation of the children of Israel going to the promised land and our own situation. We are not society's judges. We don't go out with a sword and kill those people that don't go to church on Sundays or honor God in their homes or things like that. But there are also similarities here. We have been called by God out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of His beloved Son, we are strangers and aliens here, 1 Peter 2.11. So in some ways, we are like Israel, standing there at the Jordan about to go in, being warned about the dangers of intermixing ourselves with the pagan culture around us. And just as the Israelites were tasked with the responsibility to teach their children diligently about the things of the Lord, we see that in Deuteronomy 4.9, 6, 7, 6, 20 to 25, 11, 19, and 32, 46. So quite a few times in the book of Deuteronomy, they are commanded to hand these things down to their children. So we too must ensure that our children are being trained in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4. We too stand at a cultural crossroads in our day and age. And if we are to ensure the spiritual safety of ourselves and of our children, we have a lot of work to do. And we know that, I think. But first of all, we need to understand what our objective is. Because if we don't understand our objective, we're never going to get there, right? We can't get to a goal that we don't know about. And in order to do this, we need to spend at least a bit of time working about what culture is. I feel that the topic of this lecture, children and culture, or culture and our children, almost presupposes the idea that culture is in and of itself evil. And that we need to therefore stand against it. Um, we kind of get in the habit of talking that way. I do it myself. We talk about the culture and how we need to avoid the culture and things like that. Um, but that's perhaps getting a little ahead of ourselves. So what is culture? Let's define it. How do we understand what it is? Well, there are perhaps many ways of defining culture. And as you study the topic, you'll generally find that most of the definitions are fairly expansive. They're rather long. One handicap that we have is the word culture is not used in the Bible anywhere. The Bible never defines culture for us, so we have to kind of get a synthesis of, of um, Scripture. We have to even 
consult with secular authorities that sometimes investigate these things, what makes up culture, how do people organize themselves, things like that. So there's a little bit of give and take going on here. One foundational definition is that of a, an anthropologist, and this man is not a believer, so take what he says with a grain of salt, but Clifford Garrett says, the cultural concept denotes an historically transmitted patterns of meaning embodied in symbols, a system of inherited conceptions expressed in symbolic forms by means of which men communicate, perpetuate, and develop their knowledge and attitudes towards life. So that's a pretty wordy definition. That, that takes a lot of thinking. But you can see, essentially what he's getting at here is that there's a historical element of culture. It goes back. It didn't start with us. Previous generations have passed things down to us, correct? It's expressed in symbols. And what he means there by symbols is things like the arts, food, clothing, these different symbols, you know, what kind of buildings you build. Pennsylvania Dutch barns are extremely different than the barns of North Carolina. I can tell you that for a fact. And that's part of culture. You know, what type of buildings do you build? What categories do we have in order to express ourselves, to teach our values to others, to increase knowledge and understanding of the world around us? This is all influenced by culture. Another definition comes from the Luzanne Committee of World Evangelism. Uh, World Evangelism. It requires a little less explaining. They define culture as an integrated system of beliefs, values, customs, and institutions which bind a society together and gives it a sense of identity, dignity, security, and continuity. So notice they say that it's integrated, that is, it affects all of life. Our culture affects really everything that we do. It's particularly helpful to point out that the society that it binds together can be either large or small, or both, right? You can have regional culture, you can have national culture, so we're American, we're not European, right? Uh, but y'all up here, don't say y'all. So Midwestern or wherever we are, wherever Michigan is considered, culture is very different than North Carolina culture. I knew I was too far from home when I ordered sweet tea and they had to apologize and say that they didn't have any. So I had unsweet tea. But this is culture, right? I mean, this is a regional culture. Things in Michigan are different than things in North Carolina. But also we can have local cultures. We can have urban culture versus suburban culture versus rural culture. We're out here in, in the rural area. I live in the rural area, so I feel at home amongst cornfields. If this conference were held in the middle of an urban center, I would feel out of my comfort zone. So this too is culture. We can even have in that, we can have subcultures, right? We can have church culture. And there are also gangs that have their own culture, right? Or you might have a knitting club or some type of civic club or a sports league or whatever. And culture is based around those things. So we see this all happen simultaneously. And in even maybe a more expansive definition from one Ken Myers is helpful in understanding the expansiveness of culture. He defines it as following. He says, a dynamic pattern of ever-changing matrix of objects, so there again we get the symbols, Artifacts, sounds, institutions, philosophies, fashions. You know, why do we wear pants instead of the Pakistani clothing that you see, the, the baggy, almost like, like uh, pajama pants and the long shirts? We don't wear that in America. Well, this is culture. Fashions, enthusiasm, myths, prejudices, relationships, attitudes, tastes, rituals, habits, colors, and loves, all embodied in individual people, in groups, in collectives, 
and associations of peoples, many of whom do not even know that they are associated, in books and buildings and the use of time and space in wars and jokes and in food. Well, I don't need to, to go into much more detail about that. As you can see, the way that we understand culture is multitudinous, and it really does influence everything we do, right? So this brings us to the consideration, where then did culture come from? Well, many Christians have seen in Genesis 1.28 the creation of culture, and what's often called the cultural mandate. And there God says to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So they are commanded to reproduce, to organize, to subdue, and to utilize. And this is creating culture. So in some sense, God is commanding them to create culture. And in his absolute sovereignty, moving all things together, he is creating culture himself. Therefore, culture cannot be inherently evil, unchristian, or even anti-God, right? This has not been the sentiment of Christian throughout the ages. There have been many different opinions about this. So, you may have heard of this man. Um, his name is H. Richard Niebuhr. He wrote the seminal work on culture. It's called Christ and Culture. This was written in 1949, so a lot has developed since then. But he came up with five categories of how the church can integrate, or um, not integrate isn't the right word, but um, interact with. That's the word I'm looking for. Interact with culture. He gave five models. Christ against culture. Christ of culture. Christ above culture. Christ and culture in paradox. And Christ the transformer of culture. So Christ against culture would be what hath Jerusalem to do with Athens. That kind of, they're so separate that we don't need to ever try to bring them together. They are um, diametrically opposed to one another. They don't mix. The Christ of culture, that second one, would say that Christianity and culture function in harmony. We don't need to try to pull them apart at all. Christianity teaches um, good moral lessons, essentially, and that cultural traditions are at their highest aspirations when they mix most closely with Christian teaching. That would kind of be the Christ of culture. Then the third point, Christ above culture, would say that Christ and culture are very different, and yet there's good to be found in both. This view emphasizes that good works are carried out in culture, and yet are only made possible by grace. So grace is influencing how we do these things. But we can't separate the one from the other. Thomas Aquinas was perhaps the most well-known proponent of this position. The fourth position, Christ and culture in paradox. This view differs from the preceding one by maintaining that while both Christ and culture claim our loyalty, the tensions between them cannot be reconciled in any lasting way. This is... Um, Lutheran two-kingdom theology. I'm not going to take any time to go over that, but if you are interested in Lutheran two-kingdom theology, you can read to your heart's content about this. It is a very difficult system to get your head around. But they basically see God working one way in the church and another way in culture. He works through divine revelation in the church, through his laws, through um, the word, and then in culture he works mainly through natural means, through physics, through chemistry, um, kind of keeping things running that way. Um, this would be why Luther was opposed to the peasant revolts. I don't know if you know anything about that, but when the peasants kind of rose up, you've ever seen the movie Luther? He strikes that down with a vengeance and orders the army in there because he says there's nothing worse than a rebel. 
because that's how he sees the kingdom of this world. But he also says that we don't need that type of heavy-handed rule in the church because we can govern ourselves there. So it's very difficult to kind of get all the nuances there of that position. Well, then fifthly, Christ, the transformer of culture. This is a good definition from Dr. John Frame from RTS down in Orlando. He says, Christians should be seeking to transform culture according to the standards of God's word. This simply means that if you are a Christian artist, car repairman, government official, or whatever, you should be seeking to do this work as a Christian, to apply God's standards to your work. As Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I would suspect that most of us probably would fall into this, this fifth category. And like I said, this is a 50-year-old book. It's actually older than that now. It was written in 1949. So a great deal of work and interaction has been done with these five categories. This is by no means the end of the discussion, but rather the beginning of it. This is, kind of gives you a foundation to work forward from. Does that make sense? So coming now to the focus of our discussion, children and culture, the crossroads at which we stand between larger American culture, as we think of, you know, probably when we say culture, we're thinking more of like pop culture, what you would see on MTV, what we would see going on um, in the magazine stands, you know, those things that, that are very clearly opposed to Christianity, rather than the culture that determines why we build buildings a certain way, and why we wear striped shirts rather than long Pakistani robes. Well, we too have a responsibility, just as the children of Israel, to raise our children in a manner keeping with God's revelation. We see that in Ephesians 6.4. And I don't need to spend too much time convincing you that children are growing up today in a difficult, debauched, and dangerous age. American popular culture at large is hell-bent on the destruction of the family and the demise of Christianity. And I do see several trends that are perhaps the most monumental for our children today that we need to be aware of and on our guard against. And the first one would be hypersexualization. This is certainly one of the most dangerous. Hypersexualization. I try to be delicate with this topic, but it's out there and we need to deal with it. The so-called adult entertainment industry is anything but. Most conservative estimates say that it is a multi-billion dollar industry. You might have heard things like saying that uh, the adult entertainment industry brings in more money than all the major sports leagues combined. Most folks think that those numbers are grossly exaggerated. But even being conservative, they say that it's between five and six billion dollars a year going towards uh, pornography and things of that nature. So it is out there and it is prevalent. Unfortunately, 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to pornography before their 18th birthday. For boys, the first exposure on average is 12 years old. By the time they reach college, 68% of young adult men and 18% of young adult women view pornography at least once every week. Additionally, another 17% of young men and 30% of young women view pornography at least once a month. That means that 85% of young men and nearly 50% of young women are viewing pornography on a monthly basis. This is an epidemic in our culture. And unfortunately, this problem is only getting worse, not better. 
Those numbers about girls' use of this would have been very different even 10 years ago. Moreover, with the advent of things like camera phones and smartphones, this has taken a new iteration. 20% of 18 to 24-year-olds say they have sent sexually explicit images or videos with their cell phones to their friends. In one study done in the United Kingdom, there in, in uh, England, they were interviewing high school age boys. And these boys said that it was, quote, lame to view professional pornography. But rather, they greatly preferred to watch pornography made by girls they knew, girls in their schools, on their cell phones. So this is obviously a tremendous problem. So first, hypersexualization. You know, we see it in billboards, we see it in advertising, um, mindless advertising, really. Just put in something hypersexual and show your product, right? I saw it driving up the interstate as, you know, um, gentlemen's clubs. What a false name if there ever was one. But advertising in big, bold letters, all nude gentlemen's clubs, as if the other type weren't risque enough. But it is everywhere. It is around us. We can't put blinders over our eyes and pretend that it's not happening. Secondly, the homosexual marriage issue and other gender issues is a very pressing topic of our day. As we kind of thought about those definitions of culture, I know we've been flying through it, but one of the things that you would have saw if you're careful to listen, in each one of those definitions, it talks about it being passed on. It has to be replicated. It has to be passed down. This primarily happens in the family. Culture is passed on through families. And so as we're redefining the families, we're doing untold damage to those children who are going to be brought up in these families, either entered in through adoption or in vitro fertilization, because it's one of the problems with same-sex marriage. It's not a marriage at all, especially when you can't even procreate. You know, two women will never produce a child. Two men will never produce a child. So either through adoption or in vitro fertilization some other way, there are children being brought up in these homes. As they continue to live in this system, they will do untold damage to society at large as the culture itself changes as these values are being passed down. Well, also, as apologist James White says, homosexuals do not want equal rights, they want uber rights. They don't want equal rights, they want uber rights. They want you to be under their thumb. Recently, a street evangelist from America, Tony Miano, have you ever heard that name before? He's an evangelist from Southern California, was arrested in London, England, preaching outside of Wimbledon. He was speaking against all forms of sexual immorality. He was speaking, uh, speaking from, I think it was 1 Thessalonians 2, all forms of sexual immorality. He was careful to say fornicators, uh, adulterers, any type of heterosexual or homosexual sin is an offense to God. And someone took such great offense that he could possibly call homosexuality sin, that they called the cops, and he ended up in jail, arrested. Um, he spent seven hours in prison, uh, was amazed, providentially, just miraculously, was, was let free. Um, it was very likely that he was going to be detained and put to trial and spend several months over there. So obviously, our children will be affected by these things if their parents are in jail for speaking against this issue, right? That's going to be pretty pretty big deal, something we are all going to have to consider. Well, then moving on to gender issues. The issue of child transgenderism is on the rise. 
You know, think about what an anomaly and an abomination, child transgenderism. One small town in Massachusetts, a boy who now identifies as a girl was recently, um, became their first transgendered prom queen. And this is in a small town, a transgendered prom queen. In Colorado, a court recently ruled that a six-year-old boy who identifies as a girl is now allowed by the courts to use the girls' bathrooms. His parents said that he identified as a girl at 18 months of age. One person said, was this during a diaper change that he told you this? <laughs> Gender confusion is prevalent and coming to a town near you. If you don't think it could happen here, ask the folks there in Colorado or in Massachusetts how they felt before it happened. I'm sure they thought that it was just a problem for other people. So how are you going to help guide your children through this minefield? As we looked at these five different ways in which theologians have thought about how to approach culture, and supposing that the majority of us fall into that fifth category of Christ transforming culture, we can say some things at the outset. First, we are not Israel. We are not to enter in and conquest the surrounding culture with the edge of the sword. That's the way that the Muslims have done it since the 6th century. It's never been the Christian way. We don't do that. We have not been commanded as Israel to come in and judge the nation around us. But God will one day judge all men and all cultures, right? He tells us to leave vengeance to Him, that He will take care of those things. So we don't forget that aspect. We are also not liberal Christians who think that the way to affect change is through social justice, generic benevolence, education, personal enlightenment, things like that. Rather, we believe not only in the inspiration of Scripture, but also in the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't have to go to worldly psychology, sociology, anthropology, or any other ology other than theology to understand these things. So as we look at the Bible, and especially at the New Covenant Scriptures, to instruct us how we are to engage the culture and to lead our children, I think that there are some things that we can draw from them. And I believe that the way that we are to guide our children through the trials we are currently facing, and whatever yet unknown trials are coming down the pike, is to create a Christian counterculture in our home. A Christian counterculture in our home. We don't have any particular text to exegete in order to arrive at a model of how to do this. We kind of have to synthesize all of Scripture, um, various places that talk about the family. As I've already alluded to, Deuteronomy 6 is a good place to do this. It covers a lot of these things. So we'll be looking briefly at that. There it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. Also Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
And in many ways, the entire book of Proverbs really functions kind of as a manual of how to raise children, especially sons. That was kind of the, the direct objective of the writer of Proverbs there to train his son. So there are all these texts that we can look at. So what are some principles? How do we get to where we want to be with our children? Well, I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that we must lead by example. These words shall be on your heart. That's where it starts. These words shall be on your heart. We could also flip back to chapter 4, verse 9 of Deuteronomy. He says, only give heed to yourself. And keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they might not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. So we must be keeping ourselves. We must keep these words on our heart. Your children live with you day in and day out, right? They can smell a rat. They know when you are not genuine. They know the difference between what you say and what you do. So we must lead by example. They'll know what we say we value and what we really value, right? I once heard D.A. Carson say, after decades of teaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, not too far from here, I don't believe, he said his students don't learn everything that he teaches. His students learn everything that he's excited about. And they pick up on that, and that's what sticks with them. Likewise, our children will learn what we are excited about. Are we more excited about the gospel or college football? Are we teaching them to value service to the Lord or service to self? Are we excited about the word of God in prayer or recreation? You know, what, how are we leading? Are we leading by example or are we saying, do as I say, not as I do? We must secondly lead in family worship. Teach them diligently. Talk of these things when you sit in your house. If it is not already your habit, I urge you to make family worship a part of your daily life. Baptists are probably not as good at this as our Presbyterian brethren because of the differences, the way we see our children, how they are involved in the church life, where they stand, things like that. But regardless of those differences, we can still incorporate children into regular family worship in the worship of our Lord, even if he's not quite yet their Lord in the same way that the Presbyterians might think, we still owe it to them to make this a regular habit in our homes. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It really doesn't. I think some folks are intimidated by the idea of family worship because they say, well, you know, I'm no Bible scholar, I'm no pastor, I can't explain the Bible that well. Well, I think of it as trying to homeschool a child through math. You might not be able to sit down and do calculus and logarithms, but you could probably stay one step ahead of third grade math, right? Probably. I mean, seriously, it doesn't take that much. Just stay one step ahead. And you can stay one step ahead for a lot of years if you keep at it. So we don't have to be Bible scholars to do family worship. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So we pray, we read a passage, we sing a song, and we pray again. Ten minutes and it's done. It doesn't have to be something that you sit down, all right, we're going to have 45 minutes of family worship, and you're going to plant your bottom in that seat. You're probably just going to end up frustrated, both of you. So keep it simple. One of the best things, though, is that as you're training your children, you're also training yourself to do this. And your children will become your greatest advocates. 
when you are feeling lazy, they will turn to you and say, Daddy, are we going to have family worship tonight? <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> we are. We are. You're right. We need to do that, don't we? They will keep you accountable. My three-year-old will turn to me and say, are we going to read the Bible after dinner? Yes. You know, even if I didn't want to, <laughs> we will. Well, the benefits of family worship are legion. They really are. There are so many uh, different aspects to this. And I commend uh, Dr. Joel Beakey's work to you on this. Um, he's not far from you guys. He's over in Grand Rapids. Obviously, a lot of differences probably between Joel Beakey and the Sovereign Grace Baptist Association. But keep what you can. Spit out the bones. He has some phenomenal work on this subject. Thirdly, Spend time with your children. So we've got, lead your children by example. These words shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Lead in family worship. Teach them diligently. Talk about it when you sit in your homes. Now we have, spend time with your children. Teach them diligently when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Part of being a parent, especially of being a father, means sacrificing of your time, your money, your personal preferences for the good of your children, right? And that means you might not be able to, to do that hobby that you so want to do. You might not be able to spend money to buy that newest toy that you've had your eye on because you have to give preference to your family. That mean, might mean that your golf game struggles or is non-existent. I've been involved in some various clubs. You know, Ron asked me earlier about what I like to do. I love to fly fish. I love to motorcycle. Uh, two of the problems of those things is they're both very individual things. It's hard to put a three-year-old child on the back of a motorcycle. It's generally frowned upon. Um, even if you do have helmet laws in your state, uh, which boggles the mind that, that places don't. But anyways, um, you know, it's also a little difficult to wade out in the middle of a river with your child holding onto your leg. <laughs> so one thing that I have noticed as I have been involved in these various clubs, you know, really these subcultures, if you want to think about it like that, these tight-knit communities that function around hobbies, whether it's motorcycling, fishing, off-roading, whatever it is. One thing that I've noticed in almost every case is that the serious members of these hobby clubs treat their hobby like their idol. Most of them aren't believers, and uh, they take it and they take it to the nines because they have nothing else to live for. And you as a believer, and especially as a father, can have a very hard time in those places where you see those men spending and going into debt and, and all sorts of other things to have the latest toy, the nicest whatever it is, or the most accessories or whatever it is. On, you know, think of your particular hobby. What do you love? It could be woodworking. It could be needleworking. It doesn't matter. They are going to be spending more time on these pursuits because it is functioning as their idol. And you will inevitably realize that because of your biblical worldview, you are not at liberty to pursue these things the way that you see other people pursuing it. So that's just a caution. You know, hobbies aren't bad, but you must be spending time with your children. You are called first to serve your Lord, then your family, and then your church. If there's any time left over, you can serve yourself. You're probably going to find that there isn't much time left over. If you're spending time with your children, don't just idle that time away. Use it to teach them diligently. He says this, teach them diligently when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. In any event, any experience can be a time for instruction and praise. Whether it's out here in the country, hiking, camping, whatever it might be, showing them the wonder of God and creation, marveling at how he so intricately puts these things together, or 
It doesn't have to be. Some people are wired to think that way. It doesn't have to be out in nature to do this. You know, if you take your kid to the movies, don't just be a passive entertainer, right? Just receiving whatever it is they're, they're giving it. Be a Christian watcher. Teach your children how to discern, how to engage with the content that they are watching. This is just a couple of examples. So spend time with your children and then use that time for the glory of God to teach them diligently. You know, some people will say, oh, well, I don't spend a, a lot of time with the kids, but I spend quality time with the kids. It usually doesn't work out so well. Usually you have to have the quantity of time in order for those quality times to take place. Finally, fourthly, love your wife or your spouse. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I would submit to you that your children are safest when your marriage is healthiest, right? There is no better place for your children than in that covenant of companionship that we heard about last night, right? If you want to create a Christian culture in your home that will ensure that your children are prepared to encounter the culture of this world, you must begin by cultivating a healthy relationship with your wife. And this ought to go without saying, really, but it cannot. And as young as I am, I have already had many friends from college who are divorced for various reasons. And I've only been out of school for seven years. So that is not impressive. And this is, this is uh, you know, we, we get upset about the redefinition of marriage and the homosexual front and forget the fact that marriage has been redefined in America for decades as we devalued it so greatly and no-fault divorce and, well, I, you know, I don't love you anymore. I'm, I'm out of here. Marriage was redefined a long time ago. It's just taken a while for that door to swing open a little bit more for these new aberrations to come through, right? I mean, so love your wife. Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means sacrifice, right? We thought about that a little bit as we talked about spending time with your children. There's going to be sacrifice involved there, sacrifice of your time, your energy, your money. Well, so too with your wife. So concluding, ultimately, the work of guiding our children on the path of faith and obedience to the Lord is the work of the Spirit, right? Who is sufficient for these things? Certainly not us. If there is going to be change, we are going to have to trust in the Spirit, to use the means of grace, to use the Word of God in prayer over our families as we lead them in family worship, as we cultivate those relationships with our wives, with our children. We're going to have to recognize that sin is out there. It is crouching at the door of our children, and its desire is to master them. You think about that. I don't need to go back over those statistics that I read earlier, but if you don't think that it can happen in your home, you're wrong. If you think that your 13-year-old son is ready for a smartphone, maybe he is. I'm 28. I don't know that I'm ready for a smartphone. I mean, there, never before have we had access to the type of content that is available with the click of a button. Used to be you had to search it out. You had to go to the seedy side of town. You had to risk the exposure of parking your car in that lot and having someone drive by from your church recognize you. No more. Anywhere you are. Any time of day or night. 
So be careful. And as you're careful, and you're careful to trust the Lord and the work of His Spirit, trust in Him to bless His appointed means. Biblical faithfulness, humble prayerfulness, God-glorifying, gospel-centered parenting. If you've not seen some of these gospel-centered parenting resources that are out there, I commend to you Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp. It's a great book. Um, His brother, Paul, also has some good resources. Basically, you get into... To give you all in a nutshell, you could think of the idea of um, your children are little reproductions of yourself, right? My wife and I dealt with this when we were expecting obedience from our, our boy in this one certain area, and he was having a difficult time with it over and over and over again. And I looked at my wife one day and I said, you know what, I'm not very good at that either. And I've had 30 years of practice, and here he is coming up on two years. You know, this is hard. How do we enforce consistency, and yet give them grace along the way, right? We don't want to exasperate our children, as Ephesians 6, 4 says, do not provoke your children to anger, you don't lay upon them heavy burdens and then refuse to lift it with even your finger, you'll be like a Pharisee. But also we can trust in the gospel, we can trust in the Lord to perform his perfect work. You know, teach your children that conversion is a miracle, right? And then also teach them that God is in the miracle-working business and that He delights to save children, right? Especially when their parents are on their knees praying for them. So protect your children in the temporary. You know, take those measures that you need to ensure that your home is safeguarded from the assaults from the outside world, whether it's through the Internet, the TV, whatever it might be. Take those precautions to make sure that they are protected in the temporary And then by His grace and for His glory, trust the Lord to secure them to Himself for eternity. Right? Because ultimately, that's what will protect our children from this culture or any other culture, is to get them out of this culture and into the culture of the King. Thank you for your time.